Coming up today on the Lead to Succeed podcast. But when I started reflecting on all the people who made the biggest difference in my life, they were teachers and coaches. And of course, the coaches were teachers, right? So it was my basketball coach, but he was also the social studies teacher, right? I mean, so the answer was teachers. I mean, they were the mentors that transformed my life. And so for me, you know, it became pretty easy calculus to say, I want to be in a field, right, that can have a transformative effect in that way, disproportionate transformative effect compared to other fields. Do you want to learn the tricks that top leaders use to get the most out of themselves and their teams? Well, Naftali Hoff is here to help lead to succeed. Picks the brains of top leaders to learn about their challenges, insights, and best practices. Here's Naftali. Hello, Lead to Succeed Nation. It's Naftali Hoff, and welcome to Lead to Succeed, Episode 72. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Brandon Bastide. Brandon is Chief Partnership Officer and Global Head, Learn, Work, Innovation at Kaplan. He leads Kaplan's work serving, leads Kaplan's work serving U.S. colleges and universities, leveraging the organization's highly diversified global education offerings to help U.S. higher education adapt, grow, and thrive. Brandon previously served as Executive Director of Education and Workforce Development at Gallup. He serves on the board of directors for AAC&U and is a member of the Business Higher Ed Forum. Brandon, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for the invitation. Appreciate it. Now, that bio was quite a mouthful because you have so much that you've been involved with and You've been on my radar for a while, as a lot of folks know. I'm a former educator, school leader, um, and so I have this tremendous passion for education, both formal and informal, which we're going to talk about. So getting you on with me is, is really a treat. And so thank you for being here. And, and I want to jump right in, if I can, to talk about higher education, because, you know, it's really, it's been in the news so much, whether it's the, uh, the student loans and the financing of it. Um, the, 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 there are many aspects to it that have really come up. And I'm just curious to know from your take, what's really working right now in higher ed and, uh, and what's not? Well, I guess to start with what's working, you know, despite some of the data shifting uh, and some of these stories not always being true or the, or the data not all, always being true, there's still a lot of uh, veracity behind a college degree on average, helping somebody earn more money over a lifetime compared to uh, a high school only degree. Right. So, you know, we, we, we've talked about that a lot. Sure. And I still believe fundamentally that the degree still holds value uh, and that if it's done right and that there's a whole other you know piece to unpack there. Right. It, it, it still is um, is a powerful economic return uh, in addition to the other kinds of benefits that come from it. That said, um, you know there's a lot of headwinds in front of higher ed. Rising tuition prices, uh, just the overall cost of higher ed. We see that in the rising student loan debt totals that are you know increasingly being racked up and have over the last really 15 years in particular. Um, and then really serious doubts about the work readiness of college graduates at all levels, right? So. Um, you know, I mean, that, that, those are just two of the big ones that I think are, are most prominent. But, um, you know, there's uh, and there are and there, uh, final point, there are a lot more alternatives these days, alternatives, meaning alternative ways to get a degree. So in the news yesterday was Target announcing that all of their full and part time employees can 
get a you know college degree while they work at Target. Wow, Walmart I has done that. that. Um, and so, you know, look, that's a different way of doing college. You know, you're not going to a college campus. And then there's alternatives like boot camps and non-degree alternatives that are growing that um, many are quite effective pathways, depending on what you're looking for. So, sure. So th- you have you have a bunch of things right there. And I'd like to stick with it if I could for a moment. You talked about college done right. Yeah. So I-, I know that I had a plan to some degree when I got started, but I've got a, a child now just came back from a year of studying abroad post high school, ready to get started in, in, in college. And it's been such a conversation back and forth, even though she knows the general field she wants to be in, but, you know, trying to sort of niche down even further and figure it all out. Is that what you meant by done right? What, what, what specifically are you thinking and, and how can college students, because we've got college students who listen, we've got their folks who listen. Right. And, and, and so what what advice would you give people who are really thinking about their education to go in it, not just to think about, let's call it the fun and the excitement of the college campus and the learning opportunity, but really to be very purposeful? Yeah, well, I'll take it straight from the you know uh, voluminous research that came from the Gallup Purdue Index that I led when I was at Gallup. And it was looking at uh, the outcomes of, of college graduates right in life and in work and looking at the elements of their college experience that had a relationship with success later, which was measured by their workplace engagement, their overall well-being. We certainly looked at things like earnings. And the answer is there's just a handful of really key ingredients about the college experience that have a real relationship with success later. And uh, so I I don't, it's not a, it's not a long list, but it's things like Yep. You had a mentor during college who encouraged your goals and dreams, uh, a professor who made you excited about learning, uh, that you were involved in uh, classes that required a long-term project that took a semester or more to complete. And then you had a job or an internship where you were able to apply what you were learning in the classroom. Now, I've, I've summarized the, the most important ones. My point about that is if you graduate from college, never having hit the mark on any of those four things I just mentioned, you've missed out on the secret ingredients of what makes it special. And unfortunately, in this data, uh, a quarter of all college graduates didn't hit the mark on any of these key experiences. Um, And then if you look at all of them, there's six in total. I just gave everybody kind of the short short list of the four most important. Only 3% of all college graduates in the US hit the mark on all six. Hmm. So, you know, when you step back, right, I think about doing college right in a couple of ways. One, what was found in the study is it didn't matter necessarily where you went. It was more about how you did college, right? Whether these experiences were part of it. And that goes both ways. Is it a college or university that emphasizes those things? Or are you a student who makes the most of those opportunities, right? When you, when you see them presented, right? And like, do you, do you take a course that requires a long-term project or do you stay away from it because, you're worried about getting a bad grade, right? Those those would be the examples. And then the the other part of thinking about doing it right is leaving in a way where you don't leave yourself with too much student loan debt. So back to this well-being research, we found that graduates who took out any more than $25,000 in undergraduate student loan debt, it had a negative impact on their well-being for more than 25 years. So if I was just going to give broad advice, and of course there's differences by students and, you know, but broad advice, you know, get a college degree. Yes. Make sure you make the most of it in terms of these key experiences I mentioned and try to do it uh, without racking up more than $25,000 in student loan debt. 
Okay. You know, I, I really, there's a part of me that just wants to drill deeper and deeper because this is such a fascinating topic. On the other hand, it's a leadership podcast and I want to stay within the leadership focus. Yeah. But so, so I'm, I'm sort of walking that line here, Brandon, as we're talking earlier, you talked about work readiness and, you know, maybe you can unpack that one a little bit more for us, because I think, first of all, it's great for, you know, up and coming employees as aspiring, uh, you know, college, college students who are aspiring to get into the workforce. There's, it's also really relevant for hiring managers and for, you know, business owners and whatnot, for the kinds of skills that really, you know, distinguish the, the successful students and allow them to have purposeful and successful careers. So I'm, I'm curious to know what you meant by it and, uh, and what you've seen the correlation between that work readiness and the next phase in their lives. Yeah, look, I mean, I'll, I'll, be, I'll give you a really simple answer and expand a little bit. Um, it's hard to be work ready without having ever had any kind of work experience, right? And I know that sounds really, really oversimplified, but one of the things I'm worried about, and this is, this is true to the data, there's about 60 years of, of year-over-year data on this about hours worked uh, by you know, high school-age students, college-age students. Long story short, the current 18 to 24-year-olds in the United States are the least working generation in U.S. history. Wow. So when they report, you know, they worked an hour or more in the past week or whatever, right? Like the least working in U.S. history. And then when you look at the experiences either in high school or college, right? An internship, a co-op, a, a job shadow, whatever, you know, about a third of college graduates leave having had an internship where they applied what they were learning in the classroom, which means that two thirds didn't. So, you know, part of this is about, you know, what can we do in the academic experience that ensures we have either work ex- real work experience or work integrated learning. So for example, an internship that connects to a spring preparatory course and is followed up by a fall reflection course, right? That, I mean, that was the kind of program I was in as an undergrad. And, and so it was built into my program, right? It was an mm-hmm. academic component of my program where I did academic prep work for a summer opportunity in leadership, followed by reflection work. And so we're underperforming on all levels. Employers, right, aren't stepping up to the table enough to offer internships and co-op opportunities, and in particular, paid ones. So I wrote an article in Forbes a couple months ago about how we need to ban unpaid internships because they're inherently an equity and access issue, right? So, uh, so that's my big worry. Least working generation in U.S. history. Schools and universities have not scaled work readiness and work integrated learning. And on the back end, what do we get? We get a lot of people who just aren't ready for work. They haven't understood the context of it. They haven't seen the connection between what they're learning and work. And even though a lot of what we learn in college can be applied, I'll never forget a story. I interviewed a student who said uh, there was in a focus group and she said, well, I'm not using anything I learned in college in my current job. And I was like, oh, come on, like, you know, how could that be? And she's like, well, I work in marketing. And she's like, I was an English major. And I sat there and I was like, I don't understand. What are you doing in marketing? She said, well, I, I create marketing brochures for our sales organization. I said, right. What does that not have to do with mastery of the English language? And I'm like, but it wasn't until I said that that she went, oh, yeah, I guess it is related. And it, so it's, it's everything from something that simple to, They've just never had any work experience. Yeah. See, I, it's so interesting because, you know, I'm not in the field nearly like you are. 
Uh, I do have a number of advanced degrees, so I have been in college extensively. And I do think that there is a real disconnect. You know, it's, it's fascinating. I actually wrote about it in my book. Um, I remember it vividly. I was largely finished with my first master's degree, which was a, um, a, a master's in secondary ed with a focus on social studies. And my wife and I had met and we got married. She's from Chicago. We relocated. We wound up in a small suburb, northwest suburb of Chicago by the name of Schomburg. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it's the home of Motorola. And so the professor in this university where I needed to go just to take the one course and also get my practicum, the student teaching requirement, he comes in one day and he says he had a conversation with an exec over at Motorola. And the guy tells him, you guys in education, you have it all wrong because and he took a front, you know, offense to that, as you can imagine. And he said, you know, we're trying to teach collaboration. We're trying to teach, uh, connect, you know, the, the integration of, of skill sets and whatnot to develop cohesive teams. And you guys are all about individual work and no sharing and, and, and no cheating and all this kind of thing, which is a, which is a gross oversimplification. There's no question of, edu- of education on all levels, but there's an element of truth to it. And so I do think that there is this. I guess you would say um, disconnect, even yeah. even within the business schools between life, education, and the life that follows, so to speak, afterwards. So I'm just curious to know. I know you're writing about it. I know you talk about it. Um, what do you see? Is there anything that you see more more than just quote grassroots, as powerful as that could be, that you think ultimately might force the powers that be to kind of bring education to a place where it really is integrating more of the things that you pointed out are critical for our success? Yeah, look, there, there's a few things, right? And some of these, I mean, talk about leadership and framing. Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with that, right? One is, you know, employers are, very, they complain about the work readiness of college graduates, okay? And then you say, well, what's the number? And these are surveys that I was involved in doing at various points in my time at Gallup. You know, then you ask the employer, okay, what is it that those graduates are missing that you want to see? The number one answer is some kind of internship while they're in college. You said, okay, who fixes that? I mean, it comes right back to the employer, right? You know, and maybe not that employer in particular, but employers writ large need to do more to step up in offering internships. And as I mentioned, paid internships, because the unpaid stuff, it just needs to be done, right? We should, we should ban unpaid internships for equity and access reasons. But look, you know, state and local governments could incentivize employers to do that in larger numbers, right? On the university side, until the chief academic officers of higher education embrace the learning value of work as something that's part of the academic core of the institution, it's always going to be relegated to the fringe, right? The career center, a student affairs initiative, a third of students might do it because it's optional, but you'll never get to 80, 90, 100% participation. You go to an institution like Northeastern or Drexel, for example, or the University of Waterloo in Canada, you'll have one, if not multiple, six-month co-op experiences. It's built into the DNA of these institutions. It's built into their academic programming and calendars, and it's scalable. So these are big institutions. So the, the other thing I get so frustrated by is a college that says, oh, well, we can't scale this stuff. And I go, really? Northeastern's 20 plus thousand students. Drexel's, I don't know, 15 to 18,000 students. These are big institutions that have figured out how to scale work 
integrated learning. And it's not new because the co-op has been a hundred years old, right? So this is a leadership willpower framing issue and, uh, and both employers and higher ed need to be in the, in the solution set. I'm, I'm almost feeling like super psyched here that we should go and grab all these folks together, throw them in a room and sort of beat them over the head yeah. with just some good common sense. Yeah. Because, you know, we see it yeah. and it kind of leads me to my next question. I, you know, I hear Elon Musk, for example, and other very well-known, very successful CEOs kind of, pardon my French, poo-poo the, the whole um, educational process, as if to say Gary Vaynerchuk, many others, that they haven't necessarily seen the ROI. I'm not here to drill down on that point, but clearly there is one thing that I think is very true, and that is to be successful in life and in work in particular, you need much more than just what we might call academic or technical know-how. So for example, I'm a former school leader. So I know curriculum, right? I know the essential elements of good instruction. I can walk into a classroom. I can identify the different elements of a lesson, this kind of thing. But at the same time, I never really was taught change management, communication, delegation skills, time management, productivity, a lot of what we call the soft transferable skills, which is what I do a lot of my coaching with today. And so you learn that almost vicariously, or if you do it at all, you know, I was invited once down to Orlando to speak to uh, Orange County Public Schools. I had 350 assistant principals in the room, and that's what we focused on, right? Soft skill development, because that's not part of the curriculum. So what I'm curious is let's leave curriculum alone. Let's leave the colleges alone for the moment. Just from your perspective, what else does every graduate need from a soft skills, communication, people, all of that? What have you seen that that people who have this capacity do very well, do best um, as far as taking their careers forward, both in a work environment, like a regular job, as well as maybe on the more entrepreneurship side? Yeah, well, look, you know, people use slightly different terminology for things that are probably pretty similar on that, you know, soft skills spectrum, if you will. And, you know, that, that's one of our problems, too. And I know you probably thought about this and had many conversations about it. Think of the language we use, you know, hard skills versus soft skills, as if one is way more important than the other. I mean, the reality is these are these are essential skills. I mean, these soft skills we're talking about are, are very essential skills. And, you know, they're, they're, the, the important ones are increasingly becoming things like, how to be a good teammate, right? There's a lot of situations in the workplace where, you know, increasingly you've got cross-functional teams and the people you're working with do not report directly to you, right? So you don't have direct say over what you have to collaborate. And, you know, these matrixed organizations uh, are increasingly common. And so you've got, you know, people at different hierarchical levels of the organization that are part of cross-functional teams. And, you know, like, and then, you know, the leadership style these days, I mean, you know, you're, you're very familiar with this, right? But the idea of a boss, you know, just telling somebody what to do is a very old school notion. You know, most, most of the world's best managers are great coaches. They sure. have coaching conversations with their direct reports. They're not intimidating. You know, they're not the, you know, slam their, you know, fist on the table and say, get it done types. I mean, they're the ones who are literally, you know, trying to identify what you're really good at and coach you into, you know, those, uh, in, in the idea of a formal year-end review out the window, it's frequent, quick coaching conversations, right? So if that's the case, think of how school and universities are set up. You know, you, you have a big final exam, you know, you have a big exam, 
you know, it's a big formal kind of year-end process. And in a lot of cases, you may or may not be getting that regular individualized feedback and input throughout the academic year, which could change course. So take long-term projects. The reason why I love long-term projects is because you work on them over time. Many of them are with teams. And then there's a process of iteration, right? You go a little bit down the path and somebody goes, Brandon, that doesn't make sense. And you go, oh, you're right. And you tweak it and you go back to the drawing board. And so that process of iteration is something that's not in schools nearly as much as it should, right? It's like, draw this picture and it's either the perfect picture or it isn't. But if you've got feedback on that picture five times from five different colleagues and tweaked it every time, it's a superior product, right? So, sure. but we don't have that kind of a, uh, of a behavior set into schools. Um, and those are things that are critical in the workplace today. So let's take it out of the hands of the schools and put in the hands of the students and their parents for a moment, yep. because at the end of the day, we don't have this yet, right? For, for, for the most part. And you got people who are going to continue to go to the high level schools because they want that reputation. They want yep. that pedigree. Um, even if it puts them way into deeper debt, even if it creates other complications and those schools probably are not so inclined to make changes because they don't necessarily have to. So let's now kind of shift it. If I'm a student, what am I looking to do? I know you've talked about internships. You've talked about long-term projects. What else could I or should I be doing potentially to develop myself? So when I show up for my interview, right? Or I want to kind of like get that promotion down the road. I've really been leaning in heavily in this general direction. Yeah. Well, look, the advice I would give to somebody thinking about, um, you know, now I know in college, right, you have a major, there are certain courses that are required, certain courses, you don't have a choice, you have to take, but where you have the opportunity to pick the professor and not the course, do it every time. What do I mean by that? It's usually not a secret who the most amazing faculty mentors are on a campus. If I walked on any campus, it's not on the website. I start asking around. I say, hey, who are some of the famous you know, professors here? Like, oh, Joel Fleischman, Tony Brown, right? Like the, the names come forth, right? I don't care what those people teach. If you hear about a super mentor faculty member, go try to get that course, take that course. And it's the same advice in the workplace, right? The biggest mistake that most of us make in evaluating a new job is we don't think about who our manager is going to be. So you go, oh, what's the brand of the company? Oh, it's the, you know, how much money I would make? What's the vacation? You know, what is there a bonus? All that stuff matters. But what matters the most in terms of whether you're successful and engaged in that role is who your manager is. And I can't tell you how many recent college graduates have taken a job and I go, oh, well, tell me about your manager. And they go, I don't know who that is yet. You know, they were going to assign me. And I'm like, okay, you've missed the single most important thing. The simple point here is a great professor, a great faculty mentor, right, has very similar characteristics to a great manager. These are people who get to know you, get to know your strengths, right? They build relationships with you, and they help put you on a trajectory that's impossible to calculate in terms of its importance. So kind of the same thing. Pick your professor. uh, Anytime you get the chance to do that, you know, the ones who have the reputation for being great mentors and, you know, student supporters. And that includes ones, by the way, that make you work hard. Yeah. So don't be bashful if it's, you know, if they're like, oh, because I remember this. Someone said, you have to take Joel Fleischman's class, but be aware he's a super hard grader and every week you have to write a paper. Most students were like, I don't want to do it because I don't want to get a bad grade. I guess I didn't care as much about grades because I wanted to go take the class with Joel. 
And uh, and that was the right decision because to this day, he's a mentor of mine, right? So it's, wow. it, yeah. Good for you. Yeah, I, I, I love it because I do think that we tend to chase the shiny objects. We tend to chase the salary because society puts a different set of metrics out there yeah. for success. So obviously income is a big one. You know, name of the company is a big one. Title is yeah. a big one. And oftentimes we lose sight of the, of the long game that we're playing here, right? It's not a sprint to your first job. It's the marathon to your career. So it, what is ultimately the, the better path to take? Right? Sometimes you're taking the, the long short road, so to speak, because it'll eventually get you there better and more equipped so that that second or third opportunity that you have will be the one to really sort of amplify your, your trajectory in your career. So I, I don't think you could have emphasized that enough. And um, I do want to come back though, to one thing you said earlier, because it had a lot of wisdom. And at the same time, it raised my curiosity. You talked about a mentor who encourages, I think you said your, your, your passions and your dreams or something similar. Yeah. So goals and, dreams, yeah. goals and dreams. So like on the one hand, yes, you want to have that cheerleader. You want to have that person who's going to support you and someone you could look up to simultaneously. On the other hand, you know, there's a big debate. I'm sure you know about things like follow your passion, right? So, so uh, Steve Jobs make that comment famous. And then you've got people like Mike Rowe who are saying your passion comes out of ultimately, you know, the work that you do. And there, there's a lot of research that, that really picks up on that second point. Because on the one hand, following your passion means you're going to get excited about it. On the other hand, I had somebody on my podcast not that long ago, Jason Pfeffer, he said, if you follow your passion, then you'll wind up ultimately deflating your, 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 your income and what, what else, because you're never going to really see it as, as, your, as your income, your career and all of that. So it's an interesting back and forth. But specifically, what I wanted to ask you is, you, know, you also want a mentor, I would think, Brandon, that is going to push back. In other words, sure. a mentor that's going to say to you, hey, are you sure that this is really, you know, I want to, I want, I'm just going to use an ex example I've heard before. I want to pursue a degree in divinity, right? Or my father got a degree in history. He never used it because it wasn't for him. It wasn't a practical thing. He was ultimately moving in the direction of business. And sometimes kids will, quote, follow their passion because they love whatever the topic might be. But at the same time, it's not necessarily the wisest thing from a career standpoint. So what's your take on a mentor who has, on the one hand, you know, wants to encourage, wants to support, and at the same time wants to make sure that whoever's making that decision is doing so with all of the information and isn't, you know, too giddy on one side of things? Look, uh, great mentors like great managers do both of those things, right? They, they take time to understand what your goals and dreams are, right? Just think about how simple that is first. How do I know what, what to encourage if I haven't asked you that, right? So I know that sounds really simplistic, but you know, I, need to, I need to say, Brandon, what are you thinking about doing someday? And I might say, I don't know. And I'll say, well, tell me, like, if you had to pick three things now, right? So, so they'll help shape that too. But they're also the people that will be very honest with you. They'll say, you know what, honestly, you're really good at this. And I don't know, you know, I mean, like, is there a way for you to kind of take that talent, which might not be a passion of yours? This gets back to a concept that, you know, several folks might have heard about called flow, right? Flow is when you lose track of time yep. because you're in that moment where you're doing something that is, is excellence for you, right? That could be a, you're cooking or you're singing. It could be something you do at work. You're a master of spreadsheets, right? But like you get lost in time. It doesn't feel like work because you're in flow. Flow isn't necessarily passion, right? Uh, flow is about a place of excellence. And 
So that's, I think, the little tweak that I would want to put into everybody's minds that, that, by the way, goes back to great mentors. I'll give you an example. One of mine, Tony Brown, who was one of my professors at Duke, he pulled me aside one day and he said, keep in mind, this is a Duke student and I was a public policy major and public policy majors either went to law school or they went to you know, government policy jobs or they went to investment banking. That was like the three paths. Tony pulls me aside one day and says, you know, Brandon, you really ought to think about going into sales right out of college. And I was like, what? You know, and of course, you know, in general, sales has this negative connotation in a lot of people's minds. And I was like, what do you mean? And he said, it's the fastest path to management. And he said, I think you've got a gift with it. And he said, so you should really think about that. Well, I got to tell you, that was a transformative piece of advice. Now, I wasn't excited necessarily to hear like, oh, I should go into sales. But after I started thinking about it, I was like, you know, he might be onto something here. And so, you know, I've been an entrepreneur. I've led sales teams. I mean, I've been in the education world, but in some form or another, it's always been about selling an idea, right? Selling a, you know, I mean, so, so yes, you might not use the word sales, but it's been part of it. And that was a great example of a mentor who saw a talent in me. But if he had just asked about my passions, I would have told him something very different. And he would have never kind of pushed or encouraged a, you know, a non-traditional way of thinking about careers for a, you know, a public policy major at Duke, right? I love it. Yeah, that's uh, it's really a great story. So let's stay with education for a minute. And this is going to yeah. be my final question of this segment. So you clearly have a lot of talent. And as you talked about, have utilized different skills, different environments, different opportunities. But for the most part, if not exclusively, you've been in education. So I'm curious to know what pulled you specifically into education where you could have gone into, whether it was government policy, whatever the possible paths that were in front of you. Number one. And number two, how can we as a society, right? Because my kids go to independent schools. So it's a challenge in and of itself. They don't have the same kind of funding that our public schools typically enjoy, but even public schools, right? And even higher ed. There's so much of an issue of attracting quality talent where teaching almost has this negative uh, attribution. People feel like it's almost like a default. I can't do anything else, become a teacher. We've heard all of that before. How do we as a society, and maybe even on an institutional basis, really attract and retain the very best? So again, your personal passion, as well as what to fit, what to what to do in order to make this more of a of a desirable outcome, a career path for for more people. Yeah, well, look, it's it's a tricky question. You know, Finland has been a model in this. Uh, you know, they they set about as a country country of roughly five million people, right? So, a small state in the United States that, that to to become the best education country in the world, and they started with um, rigorously increasing the standards for teacher education and and dramatically increasing the pay for teachers. Now that's one formula, right? And I don't know how we as a country with 50 different states and all the different kind of federal and state level levers and things that go on that we we, we do something like Finland did, but, but they made a conscious effort to change how society sees teachers. And now in Finland, teachers are on par with doctors in terms of the prestige of the role, right? Step back from that a little bit. I mean, it's an example that we ought to look to. I don't think it can be emulated in the US, but um, this is very much about thinking about the roles that matter the most in, in, in our country. So why did I, why have I remained in education? Why did I go into education out of college? I would have never predicted that when I was in college. 
But when I started reflecting on all the people who made the biggest difference in my life, they were teachers and coaches. And of course, the coaches were teachers, right? So it was my basketball coach, but he was also the social studies teacher, right? I mean, so the answer was teachers. I mean, they were the mentors that transformed my life. And so for me, you know, it became pretty easy calculus to say, I want to be in a field, right, that can have a transformative effect in that way, disproportionate transformative effect compared to other fields. So, you know, I've always I've always kind of had that in mind because it was a it was a personal experience. So a lot of us in education, you know, we were transformed by education. And I think that's you know, that's certainly an important piece. Back to your question. Right. How do we encourage this more? I think, you know, just like we've lost sight of the learning value of work. Yeah, I would argue, right, like parents, well-intentioned, if they can afford to not have their kids work, will say, your job, Brandon, is to focus on getting good grades and tests because that's what matters. And I don't want you to work. I don't want you to be distracted by work, right? That's a well-intentioned, but I would argue, um, not good path for a parent to encourage. Like, I'm going to encourage my kids to work early, often. You know, I'm going to encourage them to, to pursue their academic pursuits with, with great rigor. Um, but the work component, I, because I value the learning value of work. So how do we how do we value the mentoring value of education, right? The life trajectory value of education. And, you know, look, I don't have a magic wand around that, but I think we can change a bit of the dialogue around how we talk about teacher impact. It's not just fluffy stuff, right? It's it's life long you know, trajectory that is influenced by these folks. And, you know, uh, I mean, should they be paid more? Sure. Right. Like I'm, I'm all in that, but I don't think that's the, the magic fix. I think it's about, you know, the culture, the dialogue we have around teaching and teachers. And look, I'll say one quick thing about the pandemic. I really do believe that we're coming out of the pandemic, all of us, or at least most of us, with a renewed appreciation for how hard it is to be a teacher. Yes. <laughs> and so because a lot of parents were thrust in this role, a lot of students were thrust into their own personal learning and, and people are coming out of this with a lot more respect and appreciation for how hard it is to be a great teacher. I agree. And that's a great re- way, I think, really to end the segment, just that level of appreciation and whatever we can do on a, on a grassroots level, certainly a higher up, even, even better many ways to shine the light on the positivity, shine the light on the impact. You know, oftentimes I'll do that at the beginning of the school year. Yeah. I'll be invited to a faculty and I'll sort of try to give them a little pick me up uh, because sometimes we do get lost in the minutia of our jobs and it can be difficult and we don't necessarily feel appreciated. So having those um, Teddy Stoller type stories of the teacher who comes in and picks a, a downtrodden kid off of his feet and really nurtures him. Those kinds of moments, obviously that's a more extreme example, but there's so many stories, Rita Pearson, these kind of people who just knew what it was like to take a kid, see the potential and really elevate that child and raise them by their bootstraps, so to speak, to a better place. So hopefully this conversation will contribute to that dialogue and, uh, and, make, a, and make a positive impact. So, so thank you for that. Now we're going to shift to the uh, to the uh, rapid fire segment, and there the, the the questions are short, the answers are shorter. Uh, just trying to move through it real quick, but at the same time, love to pick your brain on these as well. Number one, a great university that few people have heard about. I'll say Lynn University, a university I've been working with with an incredible leadership team. Uh, check out Lynn in Boca Raton, Florida. Oh, Boca, nice. I've yeah. been there before. It's a beautiful place. 
yeah. book that you most often gift or recommend? Uh, the last year, it's been Tyranny of Merit by Michael Sandel. Uh, anybody in education has to read that book for sure. Okay, we're going to check it out. And then finally, because I'm so focused on productivity, as is um, many, many of, the, lead, many of the, the listeners here on Lead to Succeed, what's a productivity tip, Brandon, that you could share to help people get more done? Uh, I have only one. The early bird gets the worm. It's an expression I've lived by my whole life, and it's wake up early. <laughs> I get up early. It's quiet. It's the time when I get my best thinking and writing and work done. And um, that, that's been my only formula is wake up early. That's fascinating. It's actually the second straight podcast where I got that response. So you're on to something here. Yeah, I try to get up early myself. That's awesome. Okay, so Brandon, before um, we wrap up, first, let everybody know, please, how they could reach out to you, how they could connect with you. Clearly, you have so much to offer, and I'd love to be able to nurture that relationship. Yeah, thanks. I mean, most of my time I I, uh, invest in social media is on LinkedIn. So uh, connect with me, follow me on LinkedIn. Um, and, uh, and then I also write fairly frequently for Forbes. Uh, and if you go to Forbes author pages and type in Brandon Busty, you can, you can actively follow me there. Uh, but those are, those are the places where I put most of my time and energy. Okay, super. So before you, before we let you go one final life lesson, please, Brandon, um, to kind of end off the conversation on a high. Uh, look, don't burn bridges. I know a lot of people have said that one, that one, um, you know, when you, when you set out in life, uh, that that's a really, really important one. Don't burn bridges. Uh, it always, it comes back to haunt you, uh, when you do. And, um, and look, your, your, your brand is your reputation. And, uh, you know, that, that's a, that's a great way to keep a, a strong brand and reputation as individuals be somebody who, um, who doesn't burn bridges. I love it. And I usually allow it to end right there. Uh, but because this point speaks so directly to a personal experience, I'm just going to elaborate for a second. I was let go at, as head of school eight years ago, or not renewed. It was complicated. I'm not going to get into the details. I chose to take the higher road, which was painful because I really felt like in many ways that I had been wronged without getting into the specifics. It ultimately served me on so many levels because forget the individuals who I quote left behind. I haven't had that much interaction, but I always felt that my next phase in my career, the coaching work that I'm doing within the educational space and beyond was, was much more viable for me because I focused on the future rather than on the past. Yeah. So I really thank you for sharing that. And I thank you for coming on. I know uh, you're very busy. And I appreciate you joining me for this conversation, education, leadership, all that good stuff. Uh, I look forward to developing our relationship further. And I thank you again for coming on Lead to Succeed. Have a great day and um, best of luck with everything you do. Well, thanks for the thoughtful questions and fun conversation. We'll definitely look forward to staying in in contact here. It certainly was a lot of fun. Bye-bye now. Thanks so much for listening to this episode and for investing in yourself so that you can lead to succeed. Before you go, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Your feedback gives the show more social proof and encourages more folks to listen. 